invite you now to take a Bible and to open it to Psalm 37. As a church family, we've been working our way through the Psalms this year, and so here we are. It is amazing that we're in September, we're in the fall, we're in the 37th week of the year uh, as we come to this passage. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, uh, this is on page 435 and then turns into 436. But I'll read Psalm 37. It says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draws the sword and bends the bow to bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, and those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young, and now am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart, and his steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land and you will look on when the wicked are cut off. 
I have seen a wicked and ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressions shall altogether be destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. And that will conclude the reading of the psalm. The psalm, if you've been with us through this series, should feel a little bit different than many of the other psalms that we've gone through. And there's a good reason for it. This is what would be classified as a wisdom psalm. David said it uh, throughout. He said, "I, I was young and now I'm old. And he's looking back and he's sharing lots of wisdom that he's learned over the years. And he actually does it poetically in a way that's not possible to translate from one language to another. So it's a longer psalm because he actually has a wise saying for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And much like the book of uh, Proverbs, um, it doesn't necessarily flow chronologically. Um, They just are a collection of sayings, and sometimes it feels like they're repeating and and going back and forth. But you could call this psalm sort of the Proverbs of David. Um, This is David looking back on life and sharing lots of nuggets of wisdom that he's experienced. And themes come up in all of those experiences. And so we could spend a good amount of time breaking them all down, uh, and we won't try to go through each of them point for point. But we see a little bit of where Solomon got his wisdom. Yes, the Lord gave it to him in response to a prayer that Solomon offered, but that wisdom also came in part from the generations before him that passed on to him the ways of the Lord and how to love him and serve him. And so most of the Psalms, as we've encountered them, have been prayers, they've been expressions of thanks or cries of questioning. And this is more about instruction. This is about what we should do in pursuing the ways uh, of the Lord. But wisdom, uh, as we seek it, it resists two different things at the same time. Wisdom resists ignorance, where we're all ignorant of something. None of us can be experts and know everything that's out there. But wisdom seeks knowledge. It wants to know more about a situation or a person. And and so knowledge is definitely a part of it. But it's possible to have a lot of knowledge, but no real action behind it. And so wisdom also resists indifference. It resists ignorance, and it resists indifference, where sometimes we know things, but we just don't care enough to do anything about it. But the person who's seeking wisdom is asking, what do I need to know and what do I need to do in the situation that I'm confronted with? It it, it has a bias towards action. And so David is wanting to pass on this information and this wisdom for each and every one of us um, to pay attention to. And the first theme that comes up as he's passing on wisdom is wisdom about wickedness. Wisdom about wickedness. David is looking out at the world and recognizing there are a lot of bad things happening. And there's responses that we can have 
to the wickedness that is around us. And one of the responses we can have is to actually become envious. And it, it, it doesn't come out in the very first verse, but it comes out throughout the psalm where he's saying to himself, do not become envious of the wicked doers, specifically because in their wickedness, it looks like they're getting ahead. They're prospering. And so when you see the prosperity of the wicked, don't start to be envious such that you would start to engage in the very same wickedness that you see happening around you. But that's what he's confronted with. That's what he's uh, wrestling with is why is it that sometimes it looks like so many people get ahead by actually doing the wrong thing? by actually ignoring the ways of God. And this is how Bruce uh, Wolke, an Old Testament scholar, summarizes actually all of the Old Testament uh, wisdom literature. He says, wisdom literature is commonly divided into teachings that promise prosperity, like the book of Proverbs, but also reflective wisdom that grapples with the prosperity of the wicked, like Job and Ecclesiastes. In both types, we're taught to fear the Lord. And so in Psalms and Proverbs and Job's and Ecclesiastes, there are these wise sayings that if we apply them, give a sense that they'll lead to prosperity, they'll lead to a future and to an inheritance. But just as many of the Proverbs wrestle with the prosperity of the wicked, with those who seem to be doing well, even though they're ignoring them. And so then here he quotes uh, another person. Uh, he says, as McCain summarizes the wisdom literature is wrestling with the Lord's rule in circumstances that seem to deny it. Many times the wisdom literature is wrestling with the Lord's rule in the circumstances that seem to deny it. And so that's what David is tempted with. He's observing that for many people, their wicked ways are leading to prosperity, leading to growth, leading to peace, and he's saying to himself, do not fret and become envious at those who are living this way. If your Bible's still open, you can turn to Psalm 73, where this comes out more explicitly. Um, Psalm 37 and Psalm 73 are sort of two sides of the same coin. Um, Psalm 73 written by someone other than David, but you can see the same, the same sort of wrestling. This is on page 455. The psalmist says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, and they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. So here the psalmist is saying, I almost slipped. I almost became really, really envious when I looked out and saw the prosperity of those who were doing otherwise what we consider wicked and unrighteous. Back in Psalm 37, there's another response that David recognizes as a temptation. So on the one hand, there's a possibility of becoming envious of them. In verse 8, 
he recognized that there's a possibility of becoming angry at them. And so he says, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. So when we see injustice in this world, on the one hand, we can become envious and d decide that we want to start doing whatever they're doing to get ahead like they seem to be enjoying life. Or on the other hand, a profound level of anger and resentment and bitterness can creep into our heart. When we look and say, people that seem to be living the wrong way are doing well, and people who seem to be living with integrity and are trying to do the right thing seem to suffer so much and go through so much hardship. And so David, from a later point in his life, is looking back he's wanting to pass on wisdom about wickedness. Don't envy it. Don't let anger and wrath fill up in your own heart toward it. Resist it and commit yourself to the Lord. And so not only does he talk about wisdom about wickedness, but then wisdom about faithfulness. That even if it doesn't seem like you're going to be immediately rewarded for doing the right thing, do the right thing. Don't do the wrong thing. Don't join in the wickedness that's around you. Verse 3 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Delight yourself in the Lord. Be faithful even if you won't be rewarded in the ways that every one of us should, should acknowledge. Yeah, the people who do wrong should be punished. The people who do what's right should be rewarded. If, if everything was just immediately fair, that's how often the world would work. But in a broken world, marred by sin, many times that's not how the world works. But God has given each and every one of us a mark of himself in our conscience and through the Holy Spirit pricking our conscience that even if the immediate consequences or rewards are not what they should be, we still know what's right and we still know what's wrong. Even if it's dark around us. I've used this as an illustration before, um, but I find it, uh, I come back to it often, so forgive me for repeating it, but I had the experience growing up of moving and living in a lot of different homes. We never left really a 10-mile radius of here, but I think I'd been before I graduated high school in at least seven different uh, homes um, because my parents just liked uh, investing in real estate and uh, building homes. And so I had the experience regularly of being in a new place and kind of feeling out how long does it take for a brand new place to feel like home? Uh, when does the house become a home? And you, you feel like you, you're settled and you know where you are. Uh, and for me, just one of the, the more tangible experiences of that is uh, when most of the lights are off and you don't know where the light switches are. You know you're in a new place. And eventually, the longer you're in a place, you now remember which side of the room the light switches are on. You remember your, your hand just kind of goes reflect, reflexively to the height of where they are, not too low, not too high, and you know how to find it. And you also then know where the furniture is in the room uh, so that even if you can't get to it, you know how to not stub your toe on the couch when you're trying to get to the other side. But basically, you know that your house has become a home when you still know exactly where you are in the dark. When you don't lose your sense of where things are, who ultimately runs the house, even when you can no longer see 
in the clearness of the daylight or with all the lights on. And I think there's a similarity in our own faith that we know that our faith has really been internalized and come home when we can still be committed to our faith and committed to doing what's right, even if it feels like the, the, the sense of rewards uh, have been taken away from it. Other people who are denying it and rejecting it seem to be getting ahead. It doesn't cause you to ultimately lose your sense of who you are or where you are and what it is that you're supposed to be doing. And so David is uh, passing on this wisdom, imploring that the next generation who would hear his words would, in spite of what it looks like gets you ahead in life, that they would commit themselves to the Lord, that they would be faithful, that they would befriend faithfulness, commit themselves to do what they know God has asked him to do. And a big part of that in this world is then expressed in wisdom about possessions. Much of this wisdom that we need for faithfulness is expressed in the wisdom we apply in it as it relates to the possessions that God has given us or lack thereof. Seven different times in the psalm, he talks about dwelling in the land and inheriting the land. This is a, an earthy psalm which is a theme throughout Scripture, from the Garden of Eden to the promised land of Israel to then Jesus saying in the Sermon on the Mount that the meek will inherit the whole thing, the whole earth, that there is a reasonable and good desire in our hearts for how God made us to live in this land and to work in this land. And to see that the work that we put into this land produces fruit and that our needs and, and are able to be taken care of. And so in the ancient Near East, I mean, uh, before you could go to a grocery store and get all your food or before you could send an electronic message to the other side of the globe, your life, you knew very much, was dependent on the land. It still is for all of us today because we all still need to eat. We've not outgrown that. Uh, we just have greater technology to help us produce more food than in centuries past. But they knew very intimately that for their life to be sustained, for there to be a future and hope, they needed good land flowing with milk and honey that they could work and toil and receive the reward from it to sustain them. And God desired for them to have it. He's the one that created the Garden of Eden. He's the one that placed Israel in the promised land. And so David is also reminding them it's good to stay where you are, to dwell in that land, and to cultivate it, to do the good that you can in producing the goods and services that you and your family need and also all the people around you. This is wisdom that he's passing on to them about work and toil, that it's not just a curse to be avoided, but it's something that is wise for them to pursue. But he also knows that there's going to be dangers along the way. And so he says, better is a little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. There's going to be times where you, you have to make a choice of, do you compromise your ethics and your integrity and do what's wrong to get more? Or can you say, you know, I think I can be content with less but do what I think is right to do. David would say, and all of Scripture would agree, it's better to have less in terms of your possessions, but to have more in terms of your character and your integrity 
your trustworthiness. That's more valuable than simply whatever the number it might be that's in your bank account. Your reputation with other people, your uh, integrity and, and, and testimony before them is more important. And then when he contrasts the wicked and the righteous in terms of their relationship with possessions, he says, the wicked borrow and never pay back. But the righteous are generous and give. That they understand that the ultimate goal and purpose of possessions is one, yes, to meet our basic needs and to sustain the life that God has given us. But their desire, if they get more and more, is not to become more and more selfish over time, but if God would grow their wealth and their possessions, that their desire would be to say, God, what do you want me to do with this? This all belongs to you. It's yours. And so how do you want me to handle the things that you are doing for me, the things that you're giving to me? And when we have that kind of perspective on money and possessions, it protects us in all circumstances. When we are without and we're lacking and we're in need, we don't again resort to bitterness and envy and wrath, but we say, God, I trust that you have what I need and you're going to provide for me, you're going to provide for my family, I can trust in you. And when I have more than I need, rather than forgetting about God or forgetting about the needs that still exist around me, there's an opportunity for the wise to say, God, if I'm no longer hurting like I used to be, somebody is still hurting. And what role would you want me to play in sharing and giving and being generous with whatever you've provided? That's why scripture, even though it's thousands of years old, so much of it feels like it was written yesterday. Because if I were just to ask you, do you feel like you've figured this all out, that you know exactly what the wise thing to do is about your, your money and your possessions? Most of us say, no, I'm, I wrestle with this kind of stuff all the time. Do you know how to handle uh, the workplace issues that come up when you see what feels like other people getting ahead even though they're not working as hard? You see them cutting corners. Say, no, I still wrestle with that. I wonder what, what God is up to in the midst of all of that. And so we come regularly to the word and we receive it as a grace and a gift from God to us because so much of what they wrestle with in their humanity, we continue to wrestle with in our humanity. And the first place to start with wisdom is to commit our way to him and say, God, we need you to teach us these things. Teach us how to handle the wickedness around us. Teach us how to be faithful. Teach us how to handle our possessions. And in all of that, one of the themes that becomes clear throughout this psalm is that God is also wanting to instill in us the wisdom of patience. These are lessons that we learn over time. And we live in a pretty instant society. We think we can get anywhere we want quickly. We think we can heat anything up we want quickly and have pretty quick access to many things that has trained us to be impatient. And it's hard to wait. It's hard to believe that things over time that require suffering and endurance will be good for us, and so we shortcut so much of the process. One of the things that was edited out of, edited out of the 5K video, um, so one of the videos showed uh, my son Joshua and I coming to the finish line of the one-mile fun run. 
Well, if you saw the video without music over it, you would hear my son saying, as he's crossing the finish line, I am never doing this again. <laughs> and it, so trying to persuade him that this was a good thing for you to do, and even though you don't feel great right now, don't tell yourself you will never do this again. Be willing to do it again, and be willing to do it again. And yes, pay attention if something feels the way it shouldn't feel, and you could be injured, and you need to take care of that. But learning how to wait and how to be patient is one of the main things that we need to learn so that wisdom over time grows in us rather than causes us to have a spirit of resentment or bitterness or anger that cuts us off from the very wisdom that we want to have. Uh, I think it was last week, it was the third round match of the U.S. Open. Uh, many of the matches in New York have been starting not till 10 or almost 11 o'clock at night, but it was a Friday night, and I was like, oh, I can... I can make up for it on Saturday if I stay up late, and so I wanted to stay up late to watch a third-round match uh, that Novak Djokovic was playing, and he lost the first two sets, and I was like, oh, no. One, this isn't going the way I was hoping for it to go, but if he turns this around, then this is going to go really late. And very early in the third set, he turned it around. And even though he was down two sets, and it's only the middle of the third set, it just became clear the whole momentum has shifted in this match. And so it's probably going to five sets and it feels like he's gonna win. And so I was up to like 1.30 in the morning watching this match that was really good. And the commentators, somewhere around 1 a.m., and I think they imagined that there was maybe only five of us watching at this point in time. But they got on this extended discussion among each other about the difference in athletes and uh, sort of superior athletes. And the main thing that they identified was that those who set themselves apart are those who can suffer well. Right? That if, if you make it to the NBA or the NFL or you make it to the professionals of anything, you have talent. And you have talent that very, very few people on the planet have. But once you're there to consistently perform well or win, one of the biggest things that sets you apart is if you can handle the pain and endure the suffering. And if you can, you'll do well. And if you can't, you'll find yourself continually in second, third, or fourth place. And I thought it was just a profound insight on life, that it's not often a prayer that we would want to ourselves pray. It's like, God, would you help me to suffer well? Would you help me to be patient enough that when something is taking longer than I wanted it to, I wouldn't lose heart or I wouldn't give up and I wouldn't stop pursuing the dream that I believe you've placed in my heart or committing myself to the righteous ways that I know you've taught me from my youth. Help me to keep doing what you want and desire and not allow the extended waiting or even suffering to knock me off course. But I submit to you that is a prayer that each and every one of us should offer for the wisdom that God's word would have for us to marinate within us enough that it just shapes everything we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for its relevance. We also thank you for its challenge that uh, you don't sugarcoat anything about life, that you are honest about all of its 
realities, especially in this broken world, that your servant David and others, that they looked upon it with eyes wide open. And as they wrestled with what was in front of them, that it, it gives us the freedom to wrestle with it as well. That none of us here have it all together. None of us know exactly what the right thing to do in each situation is. And so we need wisdom. And you invite us to ask you for it, that you'll give it to us generously. And so we pray that you would give us open minds and heart to all that you would want to teach us. That for all the additional days and years you might give us, that we would become more gracious, more kind, more generous, more loving, not more bitter, not more angry, not more envious of others. Father, help us to, to see you and to trust in you in each and every circumstance. And we thank you that your Son and our Savior was willing to demonstrate this wisdom by enduring the pain and the suffering of the cross for each and every one of us. That he never got knocked off course for the purposes that you set before him, for the salvation that we have received. And so we thank you for that, and we ask you to help us to be more like him. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.